Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is The Loser's Victory Lap. And specifically, we are going to be going into the American Civil War and how our perceptions of what happened have changed and how the South has been the ones to control that narrative. There are wars that the United States didn't exactly win, and history is taught to us in a way that suggests that we didn't really lose, we just tied, or whatever, all the time. Because we like to pretend that the United States is somehow above reproach. But the thing about this war is that it doesn't make sense that the losers have controlled the narrative for so long because the United States did win. The Union won the war, and yet it is the South that has dominated the retelling over and over again. Why? is that you might wonder and honestly I don't know if there's a perfectly clear answer to that question but I think it's partly due to how much the South was affected by it. While both sides were depleted greatly by the war, it was the South that was irrevocably damaged. They face a time of complete disarray after the war. No money, no resources, and this was a land that before had an impressive wealthy community. Remember, the South was based on a heron folk society that was very favorable to the elites. And so, for the people who had been so proud of their state and way of life, the people who had most often been born into money and had stayed within that world of wealth their entire life, for them to lose all of that was devastating. A large amount of wealthy people had made it through the war not nearly as affected as the already resourceless poor population, but after the war was won by the North, really no one in the South could escape the change. Not the poor white population, not the rich white population, and not the newly freed black population. And it's clear that to a degree, the North controlled some retelling of the narrative, but really only in a sense of prevailing in the preservation of the Union. And I think the reason why we see this is because there has always been so much pity for the South. That's not to minimize some of the Northern response after the war. There were many Northern politicians who exploited the crap out of their newfound power, as we discussed. But the South was never completely without sympathizers in the North, even during the war itself. And I think that the extent of the sympathy that was allotted to them is a major reason why we see them being able to bend things to their own agenda. And that's not to say that the North was guiltless in the twisting of the story. The only reason there was so much sympathy for the South to begin with is because of how easily the North was able to accept a certain level of racism within their own culture. If the North had actually wanted equality for the black population, the constant unrest of the South would not have been so easily empathized with. And let's take a moment to set up some of the evidence that points to that statement being true. We're going to mainly be talking about the 1920s and 30s, and we're even going to go over another hit film during that time that reveals a lot about the cultural mindset. Okay, so let's actually kick things off with the end of the 1920s. Honestly, it was a rough time for almost everyone in the United States, pretty much. After the Gilded Age came to a shrieking halt, and the economy caved in on itself like a friggin' dying star, most everyone in the country fell on hard times. People who had never in their lives gone without basic necessities found themselves having no idea how they were gonna get back on their feet. But I think that's a part of history that is known at least a little by most people with a basic knowledge of US history. 
The Great Depression is not something to get glossed over by the history books often. But there are some major things that do get glossed over about the Great Depression that we should take some time to go over. While few people escaped the economic downfall, the black population got hit really, really hard due to some serious prejudice. They were the first to be laid off from jobs when they did receive some financial assistance from the modest programs the United States had back in the day. That assistance wasn't nearly as much as their white counterparts, and it certainly wasn't enough to make it by. And as we all know, they got no help from Mr. Laissez-Faire President Hoover, whose whole thing was like, eh. I'm sure stuff will change for the better soon. And then he would just go chill in the White House without a care in the world. And black activists tried desperately to use their voice during this time, attempting to help ensure jobs to black people, and they are completely ignored by the sitting Republican president, but also by the Republican Party as a whole. And this is a big reason why there is a party shift among black voters. The party they had stayed loyal to had stopped caring about them in a severe time of need. So in the 1932 election, the black community in large numbers is going to support FDR. And that is the first time that the black vote had been overwhelmingly Democrat. And seriously difficult economic times was not the only thing happening to the black community in the 1920s and 30s. There was some major racially charged violence taking place, especially in the early 20s. One place that was bustling with economic life going into the 1920s was Tulsa, Oklahoma. This town was home to what was referred to as the Black Wall Street. There were tons of thriving businesses and shops owned by well-to-do black people. It was one of the most affluential black communities in the entire country. Sadly, such extraordinary wealth and undeniable self-sufficiency within a black community would not be allowed to persist by the racist white population in surrounding towns, nor by law enforcement and representatives, especially not in the age of Jim Crow laws. Which, to serve as a side note, many people often forget that other states outside of the that had officially seceded during the Civil War are actively going to take part in Jim Crow laws. Some of them, new states that hadn't been formed yet during the time of the war, and others were the border slaveholding states that stayed loyal to the Union but were no less racist. And Oklahoma was absolutely one of them. Some other examples of other states are Maryland, New Mexico, Missouri, Arizona, Kentucky, and Wyoming. <laughs> and we will talk a little bit more about those states later on and how they reveal something else. But to stay focused on the subject at hand, what ends up happening to Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the summer of 1921 is considered by many to be the single worst racial violence in American history. This is known as the Tulsa Race Riot or the Tulsa Massacre. The event has a lot of twists and turns, each one more infuriating and disappointing than the last. But to give you the gist of it, white supremacists who were being aided by government officials rampaged through the town. The overall death toll was misreported and the actual number of deaths that took place could be anywhere between 75 to 300. But that isn't even the scariest number. Because another tragic thing about this event was not just the deaths, but the amount of people who were left homeless. 
what happened was not your average riot. It was coming from a place of deep-seated hatred for the community as a whole. People were fighting on the streets, but also there was a privately owned aircraft firing from the sky as well, which helped to completely destroy most all of the businesses and houses of over 35 square blocks of the area. By the end of this nightmare, at least 10,000 black people lost their homes and the area was left with damages amounting to more than 1.5 million US dollars in real estate and $750,000 for personal property. And that was back in the 1920s. So that is an insane amount of money. Today, it would be equivalent to around 35.5 million US dollars. Those who lost their homes and were basically forced to flee their community never received any damage relief, meaning the state government literally did nothing to help this once thriving area. I think that's something we want to be very clear about. It's not just the disgusting actions of radical white people who made this so devastating, but how it was treated as a whole and what the aftermath revealed. Because not only did the government and local officials not help in any way to rebuild this community, they were complicit. And furthermore, city officials helped provide guns to the white people who were rioting. So this says so much about society at that time. This is where they were at culturally and legally. They weren't just allowing racism. They were helping to ensure it, and in a way that suggests little to no shame. Though they most certainly did know that it was wrong to some degree. For years, the numbers of this stayed hidden, like we said earlier, and the numbers weren't the only thing that was ignored. Just so you know, as a person who was raised in Oklahoma, I did not learn about this massacre until I was 20 years old and in college while taking classes that centered around racial studies. The event has not been taught in Oklahoma public schools until just this year, which is ridiculous. I lived a few minutes away from where one of the most egregious events that took place in this country history and had no idea. I've heard people argue that it shouldn't be taught to kids because it was such a scary event. And yet, we see battlefields of the Civil War consistently maintained and you can take tours telling you each tiny detail about everything that took place. They can even tell you what the weather was like that day. And that is literally the bloodiest war that the United States has ever fought. So I refuse to accept that type of logic, especially not from the same people that try and say that teaching a more inclusive history is trying to rewrite history or whatever. And I'm going to end that rant there and continue with the lecture, but I just felt like that needed to be said. Anyway, that's not the only thing that happened in the 1920s that is wicked revealing about the severe racial tensions during that time. Another terribly tragic and similar thing happens in Rosewood, Florida in 1923. A surprisingly similar situation to what we see in Tulsa, actually, even with what triggered the massacre is not quite to the same scale. This was another self-sufficient, predominantly black town that is struck with a wave of violence. And again, just as we see in Tulsa, the numbers of this were not correctly kept, even though unlike Tulsa, it was nationally reported on a larger scale. Somewhere between 27 to 150 deaths occurred. Just like Black Wall Street, most building structures destroyed by fires set by angry white mobs. But you know, here's the thing that gets lost in transportation. 
translation. So many white people at the time felt like black people weren't doing well and maybe they really are the inferior race because they saw emancipation as nothing more than an experiment to test black people's ability to be citizens, like we talked about in our white supremacy comparison unit. And they are coming to that conclusion during the Great Depression when literally all of America was not doing so hot and black people were being affected in much higher rates than the white population. On top of that, when we do see a thriving black community able to take root, they are literally burned to the ground by white supremacists, including the ones who held office and were supposed to be maintaining the peace. This consistent disdain for the black community throughout the 1920s and 1930s further illustrates how the country as a whole still has far too much room for empathy towards racism. But not only that, now there had been even more things to help bring the white population together. The beginning of the 1920s was just after the end of World War I, and though the U.S. played such a brief role in that particular war, the Allied victory and American aid had put the United States on the global map in many ways, and with that, of course, came a newfound surge of pride and patriotism. And then, with the widespread struggle that the Great Depression had brought, there was another unique form of bonding, because now those who had once been financially safe had experienced the fear of money insecurity, not too different from what the South had gone through during the Civil War. And that's going to be captured by the film Gone with the Wind. Yes, that's a film we're going to highlight today. So first of all, this film came out in 1939, which, wow, what a crazy year for the United States, but also the whole world, because like that's the year that World War II officially started. But also, 1939 was coming to the end of the New Deal reforms being implemented, so the country was coming off of those big changes, and those who grew up during the Great Depression were adults, or becoming adults. And just a few years ago, in the 1936 election, FDR was re-elected by a landslide, and to add on to that in 1940, as he is the only president to ever serve more than two terms, he wins yet again, likely due to fears concerning World War II, showing another form of overall unity within the country with the love of their leader. Now, if you have seen or read Gone with the Wind, you know <laughs> it's filled with a lot of melodrama and romance and all that jazz. So we're not going to do a perfect plot analysis for this film because it's wicked long and more than half of it is centered around the main character Scarlett O'Hara's chaotic love life. That being said, while we will mostly be skipping over the drama, keep in mind those aspects of the film are one of the many reasons it's going to be such a hit. People fall in love with Scarlett, though initially it seems she's not likable as she is very flawed and selfish. It's important to understand how charmed and empathetic the audience grows towards her because they will see through her eyes throughout the plot. When she has victories, they celebrate with her. When she has lost something, they grieve with her. This matters because who they are connected to in this story is a Southern woman. And as she is flawed and that's part of her character, it becomes easy for the audience to feel blasé about the fact that she and her family are slave owners. It, in many ways, brushes past the problem of her owning slaves by focusing more on her economic state and how it shifts throughout the film. 
Exactly. And that's the part of the movie that we're going to be focusing on for the most part. The economic fall of not just her family, but also the South during and after the Civil War. Scarlett, her parents, and two sisters live in Terra, Georgia, which that's a strange thing about the memory of this war. Time and time again in entertainment, the South is very often not just sympathized with, but they get to be the good guys in the film. So it's not like taking a neutral stance, it's letting them feel like the heroes of the whole movie. But anyway, the beginning of the film shows that Scarlett and her family are very wealthy and respected by the community for the most part. They throw extravagant parties, she has beautiful and very expensive looking dresses, and it even shows a little bit about the customs that had been associated with the Old South. The gentlemen are very well mannered, and the women too. Everything is so old fashioned. They even show that Scarlett actually struggles to a degree socially, only slightly, enough to suggest to the audience that her arrogant and selfish manner is not the norm for their otherwise pristine culture. But very soon into the storyline, their way of life is completely changed when it's announced that war has broken out between the North and South. Now, many aspects of the war are actually portrayed very accurately to what it was really like during that time, mostly with the insane amount of deaths that took place. It's tragic to watch because many of the young Southern men you see in the beginning at the dazzling parties are going to die in the war, and lots of men from her town die at well-known battles like Gettysburg. It also shows how horrific some of the injuries were from the war. And as for the politics of the war, there are a few scenes that give you a tentative insight on that. It doesn't give you a lot of detail as it is definitely shown to be more of a man's conversation and as the main character is a woman, she's not involved in the political scope. There is, however, one very important character that we have yet to mention who often adds another interesting layer to the political scenes. Brett Butler, who is the main love interest for Scarlet, but more relevant to our particular analysis, he serves as a sort of outsider to the Southern way of life, both politically and culturally. He is a charming, well-educated man who is far from the Southern gentleman, and even comes off as the opposite of that at times. He is depicted to have little to no honor, and though he is wealthy throughout most of the movie, it is clear he came by his money in a way that others feel is dishonest, which is ironic when he's being compared to Southern men who made their wealth exploiting a slave force, but okay. Furthermore, he is one of the few people who consistently is financially wealthy throughout the film, suggesting that an honorable way of life died with the Old South. But while he's treated for the most part like an outsider with little to no morals, he's charming and well-liked enough to often be in the room while political conversations take place. In these conversations, even in the beginning of the war, it's clear that he has very little hope that the Confederacy will win. In fact, it's like he knows the Union will be the victors. And during the war, while he does serve on the Confederate side for a while, it's clear that he's not perfectly loyal to either side. As one of the ways that he builds and maintains so much money, no matter how economically stretched the other Southerners are, is by bootlegging and smuggling throughout the war. 
So he plays an interesting role for the audience. Of course, everyone watching already knows that the South is about to get pretty badly beaten in this war, and we know how very wrong they are for having any hopes of winning. So in a way, Rhett almost has this sense about him that makes it seem as if he is as clued in, but at the same time, the storyline will make it clear that he is no hero, or even a halfway decent person. So while he offers something different for the audience, those who are viewed as proper gentlemen and all-around good people are the southern men dedicated to the war and willing to lose their life in the fight. And again, they're going to really just sort of sidestep the issue of slavery in their politically centered discussions, lots of the time more focused on the efforts of winning the war itself and other such things. So anyway, when the war is nearing its end, Scarlet will return to her hometown of Terra after being away for some time. And when she does, all the security she grew up with is completely gone. The whole town was destroyed, businesses and homes deserted. She even finds her family in total shambles. Her mother had died from illness, and Scarlet had no idea until she returned home, so she had no way of saying goodbye. And to add on to that, her father, while still alive, had become senile and was in no shape to look after the farm. And on that subject, from the beginning of the film, there had been a strong sense of pride allotted to the O'Hara's love and devotion to their land in Terra. And by their land, of course, we use that term loosely, as it's important to acknowledge that none of the United States soil was truly theirs, and the original caretakers had been forced off the land years ago, which is still an issue to be aware of to this day. But this romantic ideal of the O'Hara's being placed on this earth to watch over the land and act as shepherds to it, never abandoning the land for any reason, is a huge recurring plot point and serves a very specific role. Scarlet will build a mindset after her return to Terra that makes her determined to do anything and everything it takes to keep her family's plantation and land. And by anything, we mean anything. And before we go too much more into the plot summary, this is definitely a good time to bring up how slavery is depicted. From the beginning of the movie, this film depicts the ultimate no-no, the ickiest of icky, happy slaves. The slave that is most seen with Scarlet is named Mammy. She very much embodies that gross stereotype of the Mammy character. They didn't even make it subtle, they just gave her that name. She is definitely portrayed as being very close to Scarlet, having a motherly and caring connection to her, and likely served a large part in raising Scarlet. That being said, in a scene where Mammy is scolding her, Scarlet snaps at Mammy. She mostly does so because she's a spoiled brat and didn't like that Mammy was right, but that's still so messed up. Because while the film probably intended to reinforce how spoiled Scarlet was, what it actually did was remind the audience that at the end of the day, Scarlet believes she owns this woman and can pull rank as her master anytime she wishes. But the perceived closeness of Scarlet and Mammy is not the only time we see the happy slave syndrome taking place. When Scarlet returns home after finding in ruins, two now ex-slaves stay on the property with the O'Hara family, Mammy and Pork. They make it seem as if they are part of the family and they would never choose to leave the O'Hara's side. But in reality, it probably had more to do with the fact that they were both older and knew that there was no life they could find if they left because they were in the deep south and would 100% be subject to a ton of racism. But there's one dude in particular who really solidifies this whole happy slave trope, a man named Ashley Wilkes. 
Ashley's character is written in a way that makes it clear from the beginning that he is meant to be viewed as a sort of moral compass. While Scarlet and Red are very morally bankrupt at times, it's Ashley who best represents the dutiful and polite way of the South and is a breath of fresh air throughout all the chaos. In essence, he is the fine Southern gentleman that the Old South supposedly created. And because of this, his opinions seem to the audience to serve as the ethical high ground. And you know how we said Scarlet would do anything to keep the plantation? Well, this girl straight up tries to buy slaves off the black market to have enough hands to work the farm. And I hate that they try to make it seem like it's okay because she's doing all she can to save the farm. Like, sis, that wasn't cute when you did that trash when it was legal. It's certainly not cute now. But that's not even the worst part of the scene. Ashley scolds Scarlet for trying to basically use slave labor again and says that the black people being illegally sold were treated super poorly, getting whipped and starved, and it was disgusting to see humans being treated that way. Which, you know, that's actually true. They were being super mistreated. But Scarlet replies by being like, dude, you own slaves. How can you tell me it's immoral when it's like literally the same thing you did? To which Ashley replies, and this is a direct quote, That was different. We didn't treat them that way. I'd have freed them when father died, if the war hadn't already freed them. Ew, ew, ew. No, just, just no. For so many reasons. First off, let's start with the obvious grossness here. He is straight up insinuating that life was better for black people during the age of slavery because slave owners were good to their slaves. Like, no dude, there's no such thing as treating a slave right. If you think you own people, you're just wrong. There's no saving grace there. Second of all, another huge no-no is that it's implying Ashley, this perfect, southern, god-fearing, duty-driven, moral compass of a man, didn't fight the war because of slavery. No. Just no. You can't make him a southern elite and also make it seem like he would ever have planned on freeing his slaves. But see, that's where so much damage is often done when telling the story of the Civil War. Because if the southerners are meant to be the heroes, they can't support slavery. While racism is still alive and well in the 1930s, the country more or less revered the Civil War as the ending point to the evil institution of slavery. So in order to eliminate that conflict, Southerners who are meant to be the main characters of entertainment have to distance themselves from slavery. But that only further entrenches the completely unfounded notion that the South fought the war for any reason outside of trying to protect slavery. But to add on to Rin's point that she made regarding Scarlet and how the movie makes it appear as if she had no choice but to turn to buying slaves again, to the viewers in 1939 who had just lived through the Depression, that hits very close to home. Of course, this predominantly white audience didn't care so much about how insensitive that notion is to black people. They are too busy finding her economic depression relatable, which is the main objective of the film, to illustrate the similarities the South had with the Great Depression. Yeah, and before we wrap it up today, there is another thing we gotta go over as well regarding the film that will be a theme moving forward in other podcasts to come on the same topic. The way the film portrays the North. And here's the thing about that and why it's so relevant. There is an issue that happens right after the Civil War that is such a strange notion. Aimless Northern aggression. 
I've used that term before, so you may recognize it, or perhaps you're already familiar with the term, but this is one super annoying and gross term that is used a lot among Southern sympathizers. And it's the idea that the war was only fought because the Northern politicians, namely Lincoln and his agenda, would not allow the South to peacefully secede. But they don't just stop there. They also feel that there was no need for the war at all, and that the North had nothing except anger and maybe jealousy for the South. And here's the thing. In reality, some experts say the South caused the war as they knew it would be the cost of secession, and it was a Confederate soldier who fired the first shot, while others say it was the North, as Lincoln was the one who declared the Confederacy was nothing more than an insurrection and he called for troops first. But it doesn't really matter who started it, because the thing is, both sides had passionate reasons for fighting the war. The North was not aimless in its mission. In fact, it had very pointed desires. And I'm not one to like any war because violence is gross, but like, if there have been wars that the United States fought for just reasons, this was definitely one of them. The North wanted to end slavery and it also wanted to preserve the Union, period. That's not aimless. But yeah, so that's what the term aimless Northern aggression means. But how that relates to this film is that it definitely has whispers of that ideology. Not overwhelmingly, like we see in other forms of entertainment later on and even during the same period, but still present to a degree. Not only is that problematic issue there, but there's another thing at play too. The portrayal of the northern troops. Now, we don't see a lot of them throughout the movie, but as it's over three hours long, you can imagine we get at least a small dose of northern troops here and there. And as the southerners are protagonists, surprising to no one, the northerners can at times feel like the antagonists. I would not argue that they were the main villains as there was so much conflict within Scarlet's life that the film spends more time developing, but they are still somewhat shown in a negative light. They come off as pushy and as bullies. They certainly don't parade around in the same consistent, polite manner so many of the Southerners have. And because of this, the victors of the war and their cause is seriously undermined. And that's not to say that there isn't some truth to it. Not every northern soldier was a saint by any means. But the interesting thing about it is that this film is American. And like, the North secured the Union and ended slavery. Those are supposed to be American ideals now. So how is the narrative so easily switched and literally paints them in an unfavorable manner? And it's because the retelling of the Civil War is different than other wars. The losing half was also part of the United States, which is where this inner conflict arises. While the Union won, they don't represent all of the feelings of the country as a whole. And for those who hold such little qualms with white supremacy, they easily forget all about that evil and find it acceptable to mourn with the South as if the South was as helpless in their defeat as the nation was to the Great Depression. I think what's so frustrating, at least to me, is that the relatability to the South during the Civil War that people fresh from the Depression find is the closest form of a class conscience some people had ever had in the United States. Some things throughout the years have caused a surge of that, but this comparison just really bothers me. Because, like, the Depression was brought on by the horrible abuse of those in power, and it was nothing that the already oppressed poor class could control. But as for the Civil War, that was not the case. 
Don't get me wrong, it was still true that the elites of the time were using the poor class like marionettes on a string, but honestly, when aren't the rich doing that? And it's not in the same manner as the Depression. The South became depleted from the war they fought way too long, and for unjust and immoral causes. They refused to stop fighting because of how passionate they were about slavery. If the comparison was like, wow, look at how your morally bankrupt rich people made poor people fight a war for them to keep their money. Our richies paid us a tomato sandwich per household a week while they profited off of us and crashed our economy. So we get it, monopolizing rich people suck. If that were the case, I'd be like, okay, I can see that. But instead, they were more like, oh, Scarlet, she used to be rich, but then the mean old North decided to kill all the good men at Southern men, and now she's poor. Like, no, you're picking up on the wrong issue here. And that's the thing. It's not just Southern sympathizing that is able to persist through this type of idolization. Remember how we mentioned how other states participated in Jim Crow laws? Well, in many of those states, you're not only going to find Southern sympathizers. In some cases, they deeply connected with the plight of the Confederacy as a whole. As someone who was also raised in Oklahoma, I can't tell you how glorified the Civil War is still to this day, and in a state that would not be established into the Union until 1907. Many people there openly own what they believe to be the Confederate flag as well, and this occurrence is not something you would think would take place. For people in states that hadn't been a part of the Confederacy, wouldn't it seem like they would be relieved to not be involved with the losing side? Yet this is not the case, and that's because of how the memory has been presented. When you refuse to acknowledge the clear sins of the Southern fight, when you do not say with your whole chest that slavery was wrong and fighting to maintain it was too, then you allow for the racism that comes with slavery to stay intact. Because if you don't unravel and denounce slavery from its roots, you cut it from the trunk, and the roots will be healthy enough to live on. And the next time it rains, the tree will grow again and the roots will only become more and more deeply ingrained into the soil. And that's what's happening today. Trying to cut off branches of the tree is not going to be enough. Sometimes you got to uproot the whole tree altogether and plant a new seed. And that is where we're going to end today's lecture. And we're going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be right back. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Rin's Cranes. Have you ever found yourself looking at an object that's almost perfectly square and isn't paper, but it's not not paper? Well, have no fear, because that not not paper can find new life through Ren's extensive origami crane folding skills. Boring old napkins, useless discarded gum wrappers, or just plain old scraps of trash. All this and more can be rebirthed as a crane. If you'd like to support this lucrative business and possibly receive one of these unique cranes in the mail, you can donate to Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi, easily found on any of their social media sites. Ren's Cranes. Anything can be folded. All right, we're back. <laughs> and today, coincidentally enough, we are having the same tea 
which was introduced to us by Rin's mom and our longtime supporter <laughs> and listener of the show. Um, yeah, so this one is a bagged tea. It's called Vermont Maple Ginger. The ingredients are ginger, cinnamon, natural maple flavor with other natural flavors, <laughs> whatever that means, Guo, and Vermont maple sugar. So that's fun. <laughs> so Rin, yeah. who's your artist this week? My artist is Green Tea Pang. I love her music so much. You can vibe with it no matter what mood you're in. If you're happy or sad or somewhere in the middle, she's got a song for you. But the song that I can't get enough of right now by her is called Sane. It's so good. Give it a listen. What about you, Lisa? Who's your artist? My artist this week is Mawaya. She's an amazing digital illustrator and activist. Her portraits use bold colors, line work, and patterns and are just visually stunning. She advocates the tag Picture Blackness, which seeks to share Black experiences, and I cannot hype her up enough. Definitely check out her Instagram because each piece is compelling on its own, and altogether, it's absolutely breathtaking. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Would recommend to a friend. And am (laughs) recommending to an audience. (laughs) So, hey, Elisa, I'm also wondering, uh, who's our activist this week? This week, we wanted to highlight Jerome Foster. He is the founder of the One Million of Us organization that mobilizes and encourages young people to vote. They're centered around five core issues, which are immigration reform, gender equality, racial equality, ending gun violence, and combating climate change, which we all should be centered around those core values, in my opinion. For real, yeah. And a sentiment that Foster articulates on their website is that these changes can happen when young people mobilize and when young people vote. And we completely agree with this, and that's why we've been so focused on the upcoming election. Be sure to check out their website, which will be linked on our social media and in the show notes. And speaking of voting... Rin, what's going on in the news? All right. So, something we got to talk about. That's pretty big to team not Trump. And I'm not saying team Biden because, like, yeah. But anyway, anyone who shares the same interests of getting Trump out of office, Kamala Harris was announced as Biden's running mate. Let's go ahead and shed some light about Harris. Harris has supported and helped pass several policies that have been a huge detriment to the black community and other oppressed people in California in particular. Here are some examples of some of her problematic stances. She supported a law that forces schools to report undocumented kids over to ICE, which also separates them from their families. She also supported and funded a bill that criminalized truancy for kids in school, which disproportionately affected single working mothers and other marginalized groups. For years, she supported jailing predominantly black men for nonviolent crimes of possession of weed. She also voted to support expanding military spending on more than one occasion, supporting Trump's ridiculous desire to continue war efforts in Syria. In fact, she's low-key quite cozy with Trump. 
as she's also accepted campaign funds from him too. And she co-sponsored a bill that let Trump impose sanctions in Iran. She did nothing to stop millions of dollars being spent to transport inmates to for-profit private prisons. She opposed reform for California's three-strike law, leading to people getting life sentences for minor felonies and also led to black people being 12 times more likely to be imprisoned than white people. And she also denied transgender inmates health care and went even further by forcing trans women into men's prisons. So listen, Harris has not proven to protect marginalized people and she is no ally to those who are seeking true social change. She is by a long shot, not the top pick for most people. But here's the thing, and it sucks. We have to support her. And more pointedly, we can't be discouraged enough for us not to go out and use our voices in November. She's going to be receiving a lot of hate in the next few months, and we need to be careful about that because there are valid reasons to critique her. You should question her past voting record and political history as a whole, but there will be people who want to take her down just because she's a woman of color. And while we may not be her biggest fans, she is still making an incredibly overdue achievement and will be the first woman to hold an office as high as the vice president. We can't turn a blind eye to her mistakes as it has led to some long lasting damage for the black community and other oppressed people. But we do need to offer her our support in the confines of the fact that we share a common enemy, Trump. I know it's so exhausting to consistently be voting for the lesser of two evils, and I hope that our generation can help change that. But it's not going to be changing in time for November, and we need to act accordingly. You still have to go out and vote. Very well said. Thanks. And that pretty much wraps up the episode. Before we go, we do want to shout out our international listeners. Yeah! We've been growing a little Canadian audience, which is super awesome. You know, you don't actually have to go out of your way and listen to horribly shameful American history, but we really appreciate you taking the time and being awesome international allies when the U.S. needs you the most. So with that said, be sure to follow us on our social media, please come interact with us every Sunday. We actually have a dedicated post on Facebook and on Twitter where we want to hear from you what your thoughts on the episode are and really have a discussion on these topics. And also, Elisa goes out of her way to make the most aesthetic graphics in the game. <laughs> so please show it some love. She spends so much time on it and looks so pretty. All right. Um... Yeah, so thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Where we dive a little bit more into, you know, the memory of the Civil War. Ho ho! All right, bye!